I'm Laura Vinroot Poole. For 20 years, I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What We Wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her Puccini is the owner of Kierna Zabet, a specialty retailer with locations in New York City, Palm Beach, East Hampton, and Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. We are fellow Southerners and we've bonded over our businesses over the last 20 years. I love learning more about her career path and her commitment to putting family first. Beth Puccini is the second episode in our four-part retail miniseries. Beth Pugini, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you. So happy to be here and always so happy to talk to you. And I have to say, it's so funny because it is not a very friendly industry and it's not an industry that's very encouraging of relationships amongst peers. And so I think that that was sort of a friendship that we decided we were going to have on our own. And it, I think it was a little bit unusual. I, I could, could not agree more. We're meant to be seen as, as rivals, but I've never thought of us that way. And I've always respected what you do so much. Likewise. And, and I think a little bit of that is because we're both from the South. Absolutely. I think a whole lot of that is because we're both nice girls from the South. <laughs> Beth, you're from Virginia. I sure am. I'm from Norfolk, Virginia Beach. Yep. And what's your first fashion memory from growing up in Norfolk? <laughs> uh, first grade at Norfolk Academy, what I wore to school, which my mother had a um, Wizard of Oz obsession. And so like when I think back on the outfit, it really was like slightly more Halloween costume of Dorothy, but... <laughs> I loved it. It was a little white blouse with a blue and white gingham, almost kind of pinafore over top of it. Oh, how pretty. I can yeah. see you in it now, really. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and did you always know that you wanted to be in fashion growing up? I mean, you know how it is growing up in the South. You never really knew that fashion was a career choice, right? <laughs> and when we grew up before the internet, you know, so it was just a completely different world, but I was absolutely 100% always obsessed with fashion. I mean, to the point where, you know, my older brother would mercilessly tease me because I wrote down every single item that I wore every single day of high school. <laughs> I would literally keep a record. I mean, I went to a school that did not have a uniform, but we did have a dress code. And so every night before school, I would get on the phone with my best friends and we would be like, well, is tomorrow going to be a dressy day or a casual day? Are you going to wear a skirt or is it more like pants? And we would like, you know, coordinate what we were doing and then, you know, plan the outfit out the night before. And the reason for the diary was because you didn't want to repeat an outfit or that you wanted to that remember. Absolutely correct. I did not want to repeat. <laughs> Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> I mean, at least like my obsession turned out to be a career choice and wasn't just, True. you know, me being a total freak. <laughs> 
I think you had very stylish parents. I did. Yes. I mean, my parents are both have great senses of style and, you know, they grew up with nothing. They're high school sweethearts. My, they got married when my mother was 18 and my dad had just turned 20 and they actually crossed the border to North Carolina to get married because in Virginia, if the bride was 18, you had to have parental permission to get married. And my grandparents would not give permission. So they crossed the border to North Carolina and got married in Kill Devil Hills. Oh, I love that. Where yeah. in North Carolina, I think it could be like 15. <laughs> And so, you know, they, I, I, I think, you know, we kind of grew up with them because they were so young and my dad is really entrepreneurial and my mother's very creative and my dad turned out to be really successful. And, you know, I think as they were able to, they started caring more and more about what they wore. And did you shop with your mom there or did y'all travel to shop? There was really no shopping in Norfolk or Virginia Beach, save for like one fabulous store. And so my mother knew how much I cared. I mean, even in fourth grade, we did this silly project where everyone took a piece of construction paper and you had to cut out the shape of a t-shirt and the teacher hung from the ceiling like a clothesline and we all had little clothes pins and we had to write something on our construction paper t-shirt that we liked about ourselves. So I like how I play soccer. I like that I know how to cook. I like that I'm a good big sister. I wrote, I like my clothes. <laughs> I'm sure the teacher was like, wow, that is just really something. <laughs> and so, but when I was in high school, you know, and I was a great student and, you know, I was a really good kid. And I think, you know, the reward for that was my mother would say, don't you feel a cold coming on Beth? And I'd say, yeah, I do. I sure do. And we would wake up at 6 a.m. and drive four hours to Tyson's Corner in D.C., <laughs> spend the whole day shopping, like end the day at like four o'clock with like a Diet Coke and a cookie <laughs> and then drive back home. <laughs> what was your favorite thing at that time? I think we're, I'm a little older than you, but I think we're about the same age. I mean, there were so many good outfits from that day, like the, that era, like CP company and, oh, yeah. um, you know, uh, of course, Benetton. And I always made, like when I felt like I was getting really cool, we would go to Fiorucci in DC. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. So, you know, so much good stuff from that era. And then you went to UVA. I sure did. Art, history, and French literature. Well, which is the perfect segue to fashion. I mean, truly. And, you know, I mean, I didn't consider fashion as a choice. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I loved languages in high school and I really loved art. And, you know, it was an excellent backdrop for, for a career in fashion. And, you know, I actually have a French major that I use. <laughs> so yeah, I, I have always known that about you, that you speak French well. And did you study abroad? Not only did I spend one semester abroad, I spent two semesters abroad. <laughs> I went to Paris first semester of my third year and it was a life-changing trip, obviously. I mean, you know, Paris was, I, I'd been to Paris once before, but, you know, I, I would go to the Musée d'Orsay every week and just cry it, I, with joy. <laughs> I couldn't get over how fabulous it was. It was, it was a super, super exciting stage in my life that kind of changed everything. Um, and so I did a semester in Paris. 
I went back to UVA and did sorority rush and said, I think I'm going to actually be on kitchen duty for sorority rush this time. (laughs) And then I said, you know, I really want to go back to Europe. And so I convinced my parents to let me go first semester of my fourth year to Florence. Oh, wow. And, And that was incredible. And I, I was taking Italian classes. So I spoke Italian too. And in Paris, I lived with a French family and it was a very traditional, you know, semester abroad college experience where I traveled every weekend with my friends and, you know, did school during the week and in Paris. And then in Italy, I went to an art school and I lived with Italian students and I didn't really travel too much because I really kind of just wanted to settle into the culture of Florence. And I loved it so much. Went back to UVA and had one last hurrah and said to my parents, okay, I want to move to Europe and find a job. And they were like, you're done. You're finding a job in America. (laughs) Enough. (laughs) And was it obviously New York? It was obviously New York. After I came back from Paris, I, I knew it was New York. You know, I mean, when I first... I mean, you went to you know, boarding school up north, but I thought when I looked at colleges, I thought I wanted to go to school up north and I couldn't believe how shockingly different everybody looked and talked and acted. And I just wasn't ready for it. Yeah, I was, I was not mentally prepared for the north as, as a high school senior. But then, you know, by the time I got through college, I knew it was New York or bust. And so I pretty much moved right after I graduated. And I had had one college experience as an intern in the Barney's personal shopping department. Oh, wow. And I worked with this legendary woman, Louise Maniscalco, who I'm still friends with today, who's still a personal shopper today. And it was when Barney's was on 17th Street. And, you know, it was where all the celebs came to get dressed. But then it was also like the mafia wives came there, like anybody rich. I mean, it was such an eye opening experience that like mafia women would show up with paper bags with cash in it and they would pay that way. And then you were like Christopher Walken came in and needed a wardrobe for a movie, you know, a promotion tour. So it was just a very funny mix of, of things and really opened my eyes to the world of fashion. And so I thought I wanted to work for, I was like, I'm going to run a magazine. I'm going to be the next editor in chief of Vogue was what I moved to New York thinking. And my father was like, and you're going to need a job immediately. And so when I graduated, I had two job offers on the table. Barney's had just opened up town. And so one was to be a personal shopper in the uptown Barney's. And the other was to be an unpaid intern at Mirabella magazine. (laughs) And so you obviously picked that one. (laughs) I obviously picked that one. My father said to me, uh, you have six weeks to get a job. So you, I will, you can go and do that, but you have six weeks for a job. And two weeks later, luckily they fired some girl and I got her job. So, so. I was like, see, I did it. Two weeks, dad. I love it. And did you enjoy it? My first day on the job, I showed up at nine o'clock and it was just nonstop. You know, there was the, the European editor was in town from Paris who, you know, of course spoke, was this super, super chic French woman. And there was all this buzz happening and we were doing run-throughs and these racks of clothes were rolling in. And it was the most exciting day of my entire life. Like I, I just <laughs> could not believe it. And no one, everyone was mean. Nobody told me to go get lunch. And finally at seven o'clock at night, 
they said, okay, you can leave now. And since you stayed after seven, we'll pay for your taxi home. Of course, home was, you know, my best friend from high school's couch that I was sleeping on because my, I didn't have an apartment yet. Yes. <laughs> After I left that day, I was like, wow, two thoughts. Number one, I've, I'm home. This is absolutely amazing. I could not have loved this day more. And number two, I'm starving because no one let me eat lunch. And this is why everyone in New York is so skinny. skinny. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God, I love that. How long were you there, Beth? You were at Mirabella for years? I, I was there for a year and a half. And, you know, it was, it was an amazing time. Nina Garcia and I were, we started off as interns together and then we were assistants together. And there were just so many people who were still in our fashion lives who rolled through those doors. And I learned everything and saw so much. And it was just a really fantastic experience. And at the end, I left because my boss's boss's boss was this legendary woman, uh, Jade Hobson, who had started Mirabella with Grace Mirabella. And before that, she'd been the creative director at Vogue for 17 years. And she left to go to New York Magazine to be the fashion director. And so this is a woman who's used to, you know, 50 people in the fashion department and New York Magazine, as it's not a fashion magazine, you know, but they wanted to increase their coverage, but they only had the budget for her to take basically one entry level person. And so she took me and I, I went and did that job for four years. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, that was, that was incredible, you know, because, you know, that magazine track you don't get to advance very quickly and just because you know she basically you know let me do so much work and learn so much and you know took me to Europe immediately and you know I didn't think I was going to be able to go to fashion shows in Europe till I was 30 and instead I was you know <laughs> doing that at 25. How far along that track did you think that you wanted to open a store of your own? I was 26 at that point I had realized that I didn't want to stay in the magazine world for forever. But the crazy thing about New York Magazine was that everything that we photographed, we had to credit to a New York store. Right. Because again, it was before the internet, right? And like, you know, the advertisers were counting how many credits every department store got. And so we were trying to shoot things that you could put in New York places. And so I kept coming across, you know, I always loved the discovery, right? The new designers, the new things you're seeing. I mean, that's one of the best parts of our job now. And so I was really into the discovery of, of new vendors and no one was buying them in New York. So I had this exceptional education of who bought what, where, and how they bought it. And so I realized that there was a void. And then also I lived in the West Village and I was like, why am I going to Midtown to shop in department stores on the weekend? They don't even have the things that I want. And so I just, you know, like a super naive person <laughs> thought I could do it better. <laughs> well, and, and let me ask you this, New York, it is birthplace of all of the best department stores, Bonwit Teller. And I mean, all, all of the classic sort of the best stores in the world, I guess. Were there ever specialty stores? I mean, did they exist before you? Yeah, there was one called Baguda, but he was really focused on Italian designers. And at that point, the Italian designers were so big in brand name. It was kind of like the heyday of that, that I was like, that's not what I care about at all. I want the obscure English and French and American designers. And no one was doing that. Right. 
Charivari uptown. But yeah, Charivari, exactly. I mean, they were the first, right? They were legendary. You know, when I started, I was like, we're not going to be that store that has those designers that advertise on the side of the bus. <laughs> so how did it happen? I mean, how, how did you find the courage and the confidence and, and the leap of faith, I guess, to sign the lease? And so, I mean, I, what I figured out also was that a career was really important to me. And I definitely wanted a career, but I wanted it on my own terms. I did not know my husband, I, you know, but I knew I wanted a husband. I knew I wanted a family. I had kind of watched that you could work really hard in a magazine and be fired on a whim and, you know, really be struggling for what your future looked like and have no personal life of your own. And I, you know, never went to New York thinking I was going to have my own business one day, but I just kind of realized watching everyone around me, but that I really wanted to work in fashion. I didn't want to work in that, you know, I, I went after the fact I would, when I was married, my husband and I went to go see the devil wears Prada. <laughs> I was like, um, that was a documentary. <laughs> that was, that was just for sure a documentary. <laughs> so my friend from college who I originally started the business with had the buying experience. So basically I knew who to buy and she knew how much. Right. So I would be like, I found the most amazing designer and we definitely need to get this jumpsuit. Are we supposed to buy three or 300? And I didn't know how to do Microsoft Excel. And, you know, I didn't know any business things whatsoever. And she did. And so I basically convinced her to start it with me. Interesting. And, and we did. And then I bought her out and expanded. I want to tell you something I remember really vividly was being in the Chloe showroom and I feel like I was really pregnant or something. <laughs> but I remember you and your partner, you and Sarah, a table full of handbags. And you were, I remember you saying, you know, she was saying, I really think we need, you know, this, this style, 10 of these styles or whatever. And you said, while I appreciate your opinion, I disagree. I think that we need this, this, this. And it was like this really grown up. <laughs> um, I, I, I had never really seen anything like that. Like, just in, in watching in fashion too, people yelling, people being just complete jerks. Yeah, right? exactly. I have no <laughs> recollection of that memory, but you know, again, we're nice girls from the South. Like that's, you know, <laughs> I had to do my business on my terms. <laughs> I just, I, I was always so impressed with it. Will you talk to us also about the, the name of the store and, and the oh yes again 26 years old when we started and you know trying to come up with a name and we were like oh we're southern maybe we'll do scarlet but then it turns out there's like you know 800 nail salons in manhattan named scarlet nails so we couldn't do that and then kirna is my former partner's silly college nickname from UVA and Zabet is my silly college nickname from UVA. Kierna doesn't like have a full story behind it. Just some boy started calling her that and it all stuck. And Zabet is from when I lived in Paris, you know, um, Elizabeth in French is Elisabeth. And so I lived with this fabulous French family who were so absolutely lovely. And it's, you know, I mean, I was, you know, pretty decent in French before I got there, but we did not speak, speak a lick of English in that house. And we had a formal sit down dinner every single night and every night the dictionary would come out and, you know, they were showing things to me, but it was all French all the time. And they lovingly wow. called me Zabet and really treated me like <laughs> a daughter. And so my parents came to visit for Thanksgiving 
and the the family invited them over for a cocktail and I opened the door to the house to see my, you know, my parents come in and the French family says in absolutely perfect English to my parents, it's been, we just absolutely love Zabette. It's been so great getting to know her. And I look at them and I'm like, you speak English? <laughs> and my parents look at me and say, who is Zabette? <laughs> and so it was just a funny moment. And so they've called me Zabette ever since. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. So shortly after you opened the store, September 11th happened. It did. But how did it affect the store? How did it affect you personally, professionally? Yeah. So I was married at that point and living in the West Village and it was New York Fashion Week and I was getting dressed for the day in a red Jean-Paul Gaultier jersey dress <laughs> with <laughs> leather cuff and collar and a pair of Chanel slingbacks. and. <laughs> Yeah, because that was when we wore heels and got really dressed for fashion shows from a different lifetime ago. Yes. And I was at home and I was had the TV on and I was like, you know, they broke in and said a plane just hit the World Trade Center. Hmm. I called my husband who was actually in Boston for a business meeting and told him, got through to him and told him and then thought like, oh my God, I've got to get to the you know, store. I was on my way there anyway. And so I'm watching the news and it's getting worse and worse. And I'm like, let me just go downstairs and I'll just walk to work. Cause I lived like a 15 minute walk from work at that point. Mm -hmm. So I went downstairs at that point, I think the second plane had hit the tower and I lived on Greenwich street, which was a direct line to the world trade center. Yeah. And so I walked out and like basically my entire building was on the street and everyone is sobbing mm -hmm. and you're watching people start to walk up covered in dust. Mm -hmm. And we all watched the first tower fall together. Yeah. And then I thought, oh my God, I've got to get to the store. Like, you know, you didn't know where anyone was. Yeah, and, sure. and I'm like, is it going to burn down? And, you know, and so I ran to the store, we soaked like whatever towels we could find to put at the door. You know, my husband was like, you need to, you, it's going to smell really badly. You need to try to keep the smell out, put damp towels around everywhere. So we went and did all that and left. And, you know, I mean, the, the world was obviously upside down and crazy. And I had a car and, um, my parents were uptown and so I got in the car and drove up to them and we could, we weren't allowed to go back downtown for days and and then when we were finally able to reopen the store it was the most gut-wrenching thing because the only people who walked in were looking for black dresses for funerals oh my god I mean it was it was super, super dark and, and absolutely gut-wrenching. I mean, it was just a terrible, terrible time. And I thought, oh, we're never going to be able to stay in business through this. I mean, why would anyone ever want to buy anything except for if you were going to a funeral? And I mean, that went on for months. Oh, it was awful. Yeah. It was and, absolutely awful. And then this summer you had, I would say, sort of similar situation with looting and we were massively looted in early June on the second night of the the um you know the crazy violence and destruction in New York how do you lead a team through that yeah I mean you know first of all I mean just the COVID crisis was already enough of a blow right I mean you and I were both in Europe together I mean I returned from oh. Paris on March 7th 
then and then we had to undo every order that we'd already done and and you know we were all all the all four stores were closed and we were on massive lockdowns and so you know we were just you know started the zoom every day just trying to keep the the team you know bright and cheerful and the looting though was a was a massive blow i actually watched it happen live um, because i had cameras on my phone and i was watching the news and i could see how bad it was and where it was going and so i was watching the camera and all of a sudden i was like oh my god here we go and it was a you know a bunch of kids throwing mm -hmm. cinder blocks through the the door and you know and i'd said to my insurance company like am i supposed to board up like what do we do and and he said we've what they're taking down all the boards like it's it doesn't matter whether you board up or not because they're pulling down boards you know i went back the next morning and we had hired a security guard to stand out out front while we kind of surveyed all the damage and the cops finally showed up and they said like you need to get out of here we just pulled, you know, five guys out of the basement of Gucci and six oh guys God. out of the basement of the UGG store. Looting is happening in broad daylight. Get out of here. Oh <laughs> You're like, how is this America? Like what is happening in our city? But yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it, it was tough. And how long before you could open the doors again? We had a ton of damage from it. So we, we really, they broke all of our jewelry cases and, um, and then, you know, it was, it was, hordes of people. It wasn't just like three people coming in and out. It was hordes of people with trash bags and getaway cars waiting. And so with the broken glass, there was such a kerfuffle of, of the floor. So we had a lot of damage to repair. So by the time, you know, we, we got through all of that, we didn't open up until, until November. Oh, wow. You had three other stores that you could. could Thank goodness. Yeah. Was this always part of your plan? You know, opened the first store in 1999, got married in 2001, had four kids in five and a half years, <laughs> raised them, you know, with that one store, got them all in school. And then, you know, at that point, I thought like the only way to really, you know, make this be like, I want this to be more than one store business and, you know, push it forward and grow it. And, you know, I wanted more. And so, I bought out my partner at the end of 2015. I opened three new stores in 17 months, and then we redid our e-commerce. And I knew that there was a place for Kieran Isabet in other locations that were untapped markets. And they were all like, each one was for a different personal reason of just, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've opened stores in places I feel like I know because I think that, you know, makes me a better merchant. And yeah. so the first one I had moved out of the city to, I, I live in the country now in Pennsylvania, kind of not near a lot of things, but <laughs> my kids go to school about 40 minutes away from where we live. And I, you know, would it drop off. The moms would be like, wait, what are those jeans? Where'd you get that back? What are those shoes? <laughs> <laughs> I knew that there was a market there. So um, I opened in Bryn Mawr. Before that, that was, that was the third one. The one I opened in the summer of 2016 was East Hampton mm -hmm. because you know, we, every New Yorker goes to the Hamptons in the summer. You know, I know it super well. And we had done a couple of pop-ups out there for the day. And, you know, then I was constantly having like clients or like the New York salespeople were saying like, Susie needs a box of so-and-so. Can you drop off a box on your way out to the Hamptons this weekend? It's <laughs> like, why am I running a courier service? Let's just open a store. A store. Right. And so I did it as a pop-up from middle of July through Labor Day that summer and was like, 
oh my God, I'm never leaving. And so I signed a long-term lease. And so well, we've been now there. I'm sure you're, you're, you have year round business there. We do. It's, you know, I mean, it's funny because even before COVID, you could see that the year round business was growing and people were making lifestyle changes. But now after COVID, I mean, it's, we're having the best January and February we've ever had out there because <laughs> people actually live out there now year round. And then I opened Palm Beach the following year. My parents and my in-laws are both in Palm Beach. And so I had been there enough and I knew that there wasn't really a, a cool store, a great place. And, you know, that's been an incredible, that, that one has been, I need like five more like that. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been fantastic. The other thing that you, you've done during the pandemic is you started a private label. I did. Tell yeah. me about that. It's funny. My husband will say he's been pushing me to do it for years. And, you know, and I was always like, there's nothing that we need. You know, I don't want to be just more noise in the story, but the supply chain problem during COVID has been a real thing. And I, it's a little more stabilized now, but in the very beginning, it, we didn't know that we were going to go into this completely different lifestyle. Nobody was prepared for it and for prepared for what we wanted to wear in it. Yeah. And so, you know, we locked down in March. And then by the time we got to summer, I was like, I want, I'm so sick of sweatpants. I want to <laughs> feel cute. I want something that feels like my nightgown that's easy to throw on that doesn't cost a fortune that I can go to the grocery store in and feel fabulous and feel cute at home in and not feel like a, a schlump. Yeah. And so um, I did three cotton poplin dresses that I named after um, my daughters and just stretch cotton poplin because, you know, now we're really used to comfort. And, and so that was the start of it along with t-shirts because I was again, like oh my, that t-shirt's too sheer. That one's too fitted. That one's too <laughs> loose. You know, I wanted to find like the just right. And I, we did t-shirts and masks and dresses to start. And it's been a huge success and it's been a, a really great creative outlet for me because I feel like so much of what we've done during this COVID time has not been creative. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I'm like 50% business, 50% creative. And I feel like I've been doing 80% business, 20% creative. So it felt great to get that creative muscle going again. And, you know, and in, in something new and different that I'd never tried before. And so that was a lot of fun. So we did that. And then the next thing we did was a line of silks because, you know, I wanted like the perfect little silk slip dress. And, and I was, you know, and they're out there in the market, right? We're seeing them all the time, but I'm like, that one's too tight there. That one's too loose there. That one's too short. That one's too long. You know, I was again, like trying to tweak things that, you know, I th you and I have been in fitting rooms with women for 20 plus years, right? We've heard it all. And what did you learn from that process about the manufacturing part? I mean, I'm sure a lot. Yeah, a lot. I mean, I'd done a few weird things before in manufacturing. So we did a collection with Target in right. 2012, right? which was really great. That was the first time I like, you know, designed a whole collection or anything. And so, you know, I, I knew enough from that. And then I did a Birkenstock collab and I did a Nine West shoe collab and I did a gilt dress collab. So I, I'd done a little bit before and a, a good friend of mine introduced me to a, a manufacturing partner in LA because made in America, especially during this time is really important to me. And so we did absolutely everything in the US. And 
you know, we have a lot of experience looking at samples and (laughs) clothes every single day for years on end. So I found the process to be a little easier and more natural than I expected it to be. And what other categories do you you think you'll- So we're going to work on knits for the fall, you know, because I I have like, you know, few knit needs that I want filled myself and, and we're going to do the, um, the dresses again for summer. Great. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, you know, it's not going to take over our business by any means, but it's a great, you know, I mean, you and I love the Dior's and the Valentino's and the Chloe's <laughs> and like all of that, but you know, that's not the reality of what people wear every day either. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's space for both. We've talked a lot about your first children, your stores, but I want to talk to you about your real human children. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I really have always been in awe of you. I have one child and I've found it really challenging. I can't imagine four. <laughs> <laughs> are you, and you're, you're one of two or are you? I, exactly. Brother, I have an right? older brother. He's, we're only 14 months apart. So we're more like twins than anything. And my husband only has a brother, but both of our mothers are one of four. And so we both came to the marriage saying we wanted four kids. Really? We did. And, you know, (laughs) then I think we just kind of did it so quickly that we didn't (laughs) think about the consequences of actually the reality of raising four kids. But no, it's amazing. I mean, you know, I had, I had my oldest daughter and then 21 months later, I had my next daughter and 16 months later, I had a son and two years later, I had another son. Wow. So that was four kids in five and a half years. I mean, yeah, I remember you, you were pregnant often. And at one point someone was like, you're so skinny. And I'm like, no, I'm actually not. You just haven't seen me not pregnant in five years. (laughs) (laughs) And will you talk to me a little bit about your second daughter? My second daughter is, um, her name is Virginia and she's about to turn 16 years old. And she has a rare genetic disease that causes intellectual disability she did not get diagnosed with this disease until she was nine years old. And she was the first person in the United States diagnosed with it. What? So what happened was, you know, I had the first child and she was, you know, did everything milestones, you know, all like totally normal development. I had the second child and she screamed bloody murder the first six months of her life. She was just a horribly colicky kid. Right. And so I kept taking her to all these doctors in New York saying like, she's screaming. It's not my first child. Like something's wrong. I know something's wrong and, um, you know, please help. And, you know, and the specialists who had never met me before were all kind of like crazy New York mom. She's fine. You know, and so I got a lot of that. Finally, it turned out she had like a gastric emptying problem. We got her on some medication and she, she did great. And, and then I was like, okay, well maybe she's just delayed because, you know, if you scream, there's gotta be consequences to screaming for six months of your life. And so she just did everything late. And so at nine months old, we got her into early intervention in New York and started doing all the therapists. And, you know, I went to every neurologist, geneticist, et cetera, everyone there was to go to up and down the East coast, basically. So we went from, you know, I did all the hospitals in New York. I went to Mass General. I went to CHOP. I went to AI DuPont and Wilmington. Like we were, I'd went to every hospital. At that point, we moved out of New York city when it was time for her to go to kindergarten, because we couldn't find a place for her to go to school in New York city, which was kind of crazy when you yeah. think like, you know, it's New York city. Yeah. There's gotta be something great. 
but you know, in either you had cerebral palsy and you're in a wheelchair or you were going to be slightly dyslexic and delayed at five was hard to tell where this was going, you know, and delayed at five is really different than delayed at 10 is really different than delayed at 16. Mm -hmm. So I ended up with this doctor who told me um, he that she needed tubes in her ears and he and you know he's like she can't hear and that's one of her big problems but we'd had hearing tests along the way but she was really sickly and had her ears were all clogged mm -hmm. and he said but you and I both know that that is not going to be the the real reason of what's going on here and I'm like yeah I know like what is going on here I've been trying to figure it out for nine years and he said I can get you into a place but it might take a little bit of time and it's a little bit alternative so you need to be open to that and I said like I'll go anywhere I've yeah. been trying to figure this out for forever and so it took a year and but he got me into this Amish and Mennonite clinic in rural Pennsylvania where they do the most incredible medicine. It's called the Clinic for Special Children. And the man who runs it went to Harvard Med School and he's the most compassionate doctor ever. And so we finally went and did, had our first appointment. I was three hours in the room alone with him, with the child. I mean, he wow. was incredible. And at the end he said, okay, well you've reached the end and it might take me six weeks and it might take me six months and it might take me six years, but I'm gonna tell you what your daughter has. So just stand by. And so next thing you know, me, husband, all four kids went to him. We all got our blood taken. They did whole exome sequencing on all of our blood. And they looked at our 32 billion letters of DNA, each of us and figured out what that needle in the haystack was that was different mm -hmm. than Virginia had. And it's a mutation of a gene called DDX3X. The gene was only discovered in like 1989. So it's, there's not a whole lot known about it. It causes intellectual disability. So she's 16 and she kind of reads like a seven-year-old and does math like a four-year-old, but she's like the happiest, cutest, most fun, most like energetic, adorable girl ever. Who's pretty much the soul of our family. I've heard you say before that the diagnosis defined your family and made you all better people. Yes, it, it is true. I mean, I think what choice do you have? Right. I mean, I always think like, I didn't get this kid for nothing, you know, <laughs> like, like, I like, why do I have the, the first child in the U S diagnosed with this? And so, you know, I got the diagnosis. I'll never forget. Um, I had, my kids have chapel at their school. And so there's a famous female basketball player named Elena Deladon. Mm -hmm. And Elena has a sister who has a whole host of uh, physical and intellectual disabilities. And she went to play at University of Connecticut, which is the number one female basketball team in the country. And she left and went back to play at the University of Delaware so she could be near her sister because she missed her sister, her special needs sister so much. And so I was sitting in chapel in the back row watching my two little boys listening to, who were huge sports fanatics, listening to Elena Deladon give this chapel about her sister. And I thought, you know what? It like, we may never know what Virginia has. It does not matter. We're all better people because of it. So what? And, you know, thank God she's in our lives. And I'm pulling out of school, like having this conversation with myself and my phone rings and it's the clinic for special children and it's the genetic counselor. And she says, we know what your daughter has. And there's one other case in the world. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe it. And so, 
I know. So after that, she called me back a week later and she said, we're up to seven cases. We're working on it. I'll be in touch. And a month later, she said, we've got 33 cases. We're writing a paper. There's a group in the Netherlands. There's a group in England and there's us in the US. And they published the first paper that ever talked about this rare disease in August of 2015. And so then the same genetic counselor um, we planned a family day. We had, there were eight U.S. families at that point. We had the, all the eight families come and the genetic counselor said to me at the end of it, all right, so this is what you need to do. You have to start a foundation, launch a website and raise money for a cure. And I was like, um, okay, I work in fashion. <laughs> <laughs> like, I actually hate science. <laughs> and she was like, I'm telling you, you're, you're the person to do it. And there's another mom who you're absolutely going to love. And I'm going to introduce you to her and you two are going to do this. And I was like, okay, you know what? You're absolutely right. Like, again, I didn't get this kid for nothing. And so she introduced me to another mom who, which we laughed because we had like a, a blind date that lasted for like three hours on the phone. <laughs> she also had a 917 cell phone number. I was like, oh, my people. <laughs> She does Hollywood PR, which is like, oh, I'm like, oh, the fashion girl and the Hollywood PR girl are gonna, are gonna run the foundation, but they we better. do, we do. And we, um, it's been, you know, that'll, that will be my second half of life career. I mean, already it's a huge part of, of my day-to-day -day reality, but we got a Chan Zuckerberg grant for their Rare as One Foundation. And yeah. it was, it was, we're in their first round of it. So we got a, a huge grant from them to basically help us not for research. We've been raising money for research and we're currently funding a lot of, of, of different research approaches, but we got money for infrastructure to kind of help us get set up with a proper patient registry and uh, hire an executive director and, and, and do all of those things of like building the business of the nonprofit. And so that's what we've been doing. When you met with the other eight families, were all of their experiences identical or? I think children are a very grounding thing. You know, as my mom always says, like motherhood is the great equalizer, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter like what your life scenario is. Motherhood is a great equalizer. Special needs motherhood is, is even more of an equalizer. And so we have a community of moms um, and dads. There's, you know, our, we have a private Facebook group of, of a thousand of us now because we're up to 600 cases in the world. Wow. And, yeah, we're on every continent except Antarctica. And, you know, we've really grown this international foundation. And so the, the bond that you have with strangers over this yeah. has been one of the most emotionally fulfilling things I've ever been through. Because you feel like you're not alone. Correct. And, and you literally were alone. Correct. I mean, alone for nine years with no idea what was going on and no idea what the prognosis would look like. And, and the skills are scattered. I mean, my daughter is verbal. She didn't speak till she was five, but now she doesn't shut up and she loves to say <laughs> swear words. And like when she dropped an F-bomb, like it's really hard not to laugh because I didn't know if she was ever going to speak, you know? <laughs> And she's funny and she's a tell-all. And I mean, she's just, we're all more compassionate and kind and open people because of her. One of the things that I have always noticed and known about you is your work ethic, as well as how grounded you are. Where do you think those qualities come from? My dad had, and he just sold all his businesses, but I mean, the most incredible work ethic. Like we basically didn't see him until we were in high school. <laughs> <And> so. <laughs> 
you know, and I think my husband comes from, you know, Italian immigrant, hardworking family too. So, you know, we are, we're both, you know, as he likes to say, grinders, <laughs> like we both <laughs> just work really, really hard. And I don't, I think it's just was ingrained in us from such an early age. Like my brother has a, a huge work ethic too. And my mother was always a doer. I mean, you know, she didn't go to college until we were in, I was in second grade and my brother was in third grade and she, she announced that she wanted to go back to work. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. You should definitely go back to work. And my brother was like, who's going to be home with us in the afternoon. And so then she decided to go back to college and she went to college and she went to community college for two years. And then she went to regular college and then she went on and got her master's. And then she started working at the local museum. And, you know, she was just always, a, she was involved in a lot of charity. Like we're, I'm from a family of doers and my husband's from a family of doers and we're trying to raise our kids the same. I always say to whom much is given, much is expected. Agreed. I've heard that very much in my life growing up. Yep. <laughs> Your episode is part of a special retail mini series that we have. Uh, we're talking to Jeffrey Kalinsky, Sherry McMullen, and Emily Holt. Oh. <laughs> and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the future of retail. What do you think it looks like? I mean, you and I have always operated this way. We know our clients we want the emotional connection with them. We want to offer great things that you can't find anywhere at great customer service. I mean, I don't think that you and I have changed that mindset in the last 20 plus years, right? People are just now realizing that that's the part of retail. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, we've always wanted that human interaction and, and, you know, I think small, right? I mean, we can be big with multiple stores, but the stores are small. They're not some overwhelming thing. And of course, you know, the buy online, pick up and store and the e-commerce, like our e-commerce business has really grown. And, you know, thank God we have that in, this, in, in these crazy times. But I still firmly believe in brick and mortar retail and the connections you make with people and the help that they need and they want. Yeah. And I think we're all so starved for human connection right now that it's only going to be even more increased after we're able to you know, come out of COVID. We need a little time to work on our communication skills, though. I have noticed <laughs> that people have a, have a hard time falling back into that. <laughs> Do you have any advice to give someone who's just graduating and wants to get into the fashion industry? I have to laugh. A lot of times I have young women say, I really want to work in magazines. And I'm going, like, oh, <laughs> okay. Uh. We have a young woman working with us right now who is so fantastic. She's taken a semester off from college because college is remote. She's been incredible. And I said to my 17-year-old daughter, when you go out in the workforce and work, I'm going to tell you what this girl does. And I want you to be just like her because she will show, roll her sleeves up, do anything. No job is too big. No job is too small. How can she help? Can she learn more? What else can she take on? I just think that kind of enthusiasm and eagerness and positive attitude and can-do spirit really goes a long way. You can work anywhere. Correct. What did you wear to prom? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> So again, my mother and I were shopping in DC for prom dresses and I found a dress that I absolutely 100% loved and desperately wanted. And it was $325. And my mother told me that was far too expensive for a prom dress and she wouldn't do it. <laughs> so, 
But she said, listen, now, you know, Tula, the Greek seamstress, I'm sure she can copy it. We'll just go buy some fabric and we'll get Tula to, to make it the same way. And so <laughs> that's what we did. We, um, we did not buy the dress. I like, you know, took a mental picture of it and I, and you know, and of because course, you didn't have a cell phone. <laughs> correct. <laughs> of course, in typical fashion for someone who t- turned out to work in fashion, I thought, the, well, the light pink is really cute, but it really would be fantastic in like a deep coral. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we redid, you know, it was like a, I, a Vicky Teal, I think was like, you know, the, the big name back then for prom dresses. It, so um, it was a kind of ruched taffeta coral strapless number with like three tiers of like a little wave at the bottom like you know different like ruffled tier real cute and I wore it with sparkly heels and um, gunmetal shoes (laughs) I mean sparkly sparkly hose literally oh my god really sparkly hose and then hair was hair I don't was hair I had you know I mean you've only known me with my little pixie which I've had for you know 25 years at this point I had a perm at that point and so I it was like a you know long like you know to my shoulders perm kind of look I wore it down and did your date have anything matching was his he did. He had a matching cummerbund and bow tie. Yes. <laughs> I know you saw to that. Yes, I sure did. And he actually had gotten in trouble at school and wasn't allowed to go to prom. And I was like, and you will get a tuxedo and you will get a matching cummerbund and you will get a limo and you will take me to prom and you will wait in the limo while I go inside. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh my God, Beth, I love that. <laughs> I expect no less. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. I really You're appreciate welcome. it. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.